Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Venture X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at how high energy, the sound that emerged in the post-disco sucks club scenes of London, San Francisco, and New York spawned the most successful production songwriting team of all time and provided a soundtrack for tragedy. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined by Ryan Harkness, and we'll continue our discussion of Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton's Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey. So last time we promised we'd do two chapters, but that was a lie. We're only going to do one. We're going to do high energy. For some reason, I thought Paradise Garage was the chapter following high energy, but we've got hip hop to cover before we get to paradise garage. So it's anyway. easy to mess all that up because there's a, there's a lot of overlap happening now, lots of different scenes exploding at the same time. So yeah, hip hop comes up next in the book, but I mean, chronologically you weren't wrong. Yeah, exactly. We forgive ourselves. That's the main thing. And, and yeah, this is the, the chronology of this is all over the place. And, and this chapter, High Energy, continues two threads. Obviously, it's a sequel to the disco chapter. Um, this basically answers the question, what happened to all the disco clubs and all the party people after disco sucked or had been declared to suck and the, and the bust was in? High Energy is what happened. And, they, and this is the quote from uh, Brewster, Brewster and Broughton. Who I, who I call Browster. Um, high energy is what happened after commercial disco collapsed and the village people checked out of the YMC, YMCA. I screwed that up so many ways, but still, I thought that's a great line. What happened after the village people checked out of the YMCA? That's uh, music that evolved in the upscale gay clubs of New York and grew to fruition in London, New York, and San Francisco, and it epitomized, it's epitomized in the high camp of artists like San Francisco Sylvester, Divine, the great John Waters actress, and Michael Brown, who sang the classic high energy anthem, So Many Men, So Little Time. So general thoughts on the era, right? I, I think the, the best way to explain high energy, because uh, it, it, I, high energy is one of those genres that you don't hear about too much. You don't even realize that 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 
this kind of music had a name, but it turns out that all of those hit songs from the early 80s that you heard on the radio so much that had a really frantic pace and a lot of really cheesy robotic synth sounds to them, those were high energy. I, I say the, the cross between when it goes from disco into high energy is basically when it goes from It's Raining, raining Men to uh, Venus by Bananarama. I think that's basically high energy takes that kind of disco sound and then turns it completely campy and then up to 11. Yes, absolutely. And, and there's a huge British influence. And the other thread that's woven in from, from the past of this book is Northern Soul, which Northern Soul we had kind of written off at the time as a musical cul-de-sac that, that was leading nowhere. Like when, when they ran out of Northern Soul records, they produced a few original pop records in that vein, but they were very cheesy and 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 we're just overshadowed by the punk explosion that was happening in england i mean they kind of helped lay the groundwork for the punk explosion it was the kind of crap that punk was reacting against but yeah and ian Ian levine who was uh at at the forefront of the northern soul scene and he was kind of blamed for maybe the downfall when he tried to take the northern soul scene up into disco uh he's he he basically plays a huge part at the front of this and pete waterman who was also a northern soul dj at first and also went to uh philadelphia and was an AR man running the disco labels over there uh he he also plays a massive massive part in this in fact he's the uh the man in the uk uh part of a uh, stock Aitken and Waterman, they have more number one hits than anybody else in the, basically in the UK, like more than the Beatles, more than anybody. Yeah. I mean, 40 top 100 hits or 100 top 40 hits, sorry, in the UK in a 10 year period, which is an incredible run. And, and we'll get, we'll get to them in a minute. There's a couple more sort of categorical definitions that they, they put down. And one I want to quibble with, they, they say, if the funkier black and Latin facets of disco evolved into house, the wider Euro disco sound of Marauder, Belot, and Jean-Marc Zeron lived on in a genre eventually known as high energy. And I got a quibble because Giorgio Marauder is absolutely an anchor of house, like as maybe more so techno than house, but still I, I think there's kind of an artificial distinction, but it's a real distinction in terms of the audiences. So we have to respect that. I mean, this, this was the music that was played in the discos of London, San Francisco, and New York in the 80s. And that's very different from what was going on in the clubs of Chicago and Detroit a little bit later. So I can kind of see that distinction, but... It was it's definitely so- there was definitely a, there was definitely a race line that got drawn. High energy is uh, is very white, very white, and I think that maybe uh, that that kind of Euro disco sound that they're crediting to, uh, you know, rather than just going, oh, this is white boy music, uh, you know, this is white boy music, and it, it's funny. <laughs> high energy. The other the other uh, the other name for it is uh, Boys Town or just Gay House. So uh, for, when it when it first came along, uh, it was very very white and very gay. True, but many of the singers were black and female. So, you know, Evelyn Thomas is, is I would never go up to Evelyn Thomas and call her a white boy. So, you know, I, I think I think we got to respect that there, there's definitely some some African-American flavor in the mix here. Grace Jones is going to be played here this episode. So it's it's not quite as segregated as the generalities, but the generalities are there for a reason. And if you were working in these clubs, you would see the crowds and it would be, you know, uh, majority white huge majority white, although there's several clubs in this mix that were more integrated, but 
Let's take the it DJs back. were definitely saying that uh, there there was like a level of funk that you were allowed to get away with, and I've I've seen this too as a uh, a DJ at a gay bar. Is that uh, you know to me before I started DJing there, I never you know funk and disco sat right next to each other, and I used to flip back and forth between them. But I kind of realized that at a certain point, the the funk is too much, and uh, gay people like disco, but the not so much uh, not so much into dancing to the funk. And a lot of the DJs in this chapter would talk about the fact that you could go disco you go high energy but uh you, you couldn't really drop any of the of the funk anthems in there yeah it is interesting and 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 there's uh, one dj they quote in there and, and there's certain james brown songs that you could play but there's other james brown songs you could not play like sex machine you could not get away with um but but we'll get there. Let's let's go back a little bit. We're going to go back in time to the early disco era and to Fire Island, New York, which they call the world's first significant gay community. I could a historian could probably quibble with that eight ways of Sunday, but it was an early openly gay wealthy enclave. It's an island off the coast of Long Island. It's it's like a barrier island between Long Island and and the ocean and it's uh, it's an awesome place. So we, we've vacationed there before. There's no cars or very few cars. You have to walk around and there's all these bungalows over the island and there's multiple neighborhoods of it that are large majority gay. And that started post-war, post-World War II. And um, it uh, they spawned discos. They had dance clubs there. And by the early 70s, they've got discos and uh, Bobby DJ at the Ice Palace gets a whole section in this book that that uh, one of the key factors that made Fire Island an important element of the New York disco scene is so many of the prom- promotion men or the record companies, and they called themselves the homo promos. And we talked about in the last couple of chapters how they'd been hired by the record companies because no, nobody at the record companies knew how to navigate club land. So they hired all these dance club veterans, many of whom are gay, some of whom are wealthy enough to have a summer place in Fire Island. And um, because of the cost of living on Fire Island, that served to segregate it. So it's, it's a much wider and wealthier crowd than, say, the crowd that was at David Mancuso's loft um, or at the sanctuary, et cetera. And, and it was a place where if you broke a song with Bobby DJ at the Ice Palace, those promo men are going to hear it. So it became a place that started feeding the city and influencing the city. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of um, – proto high energy this this is uh, dan hartman's relight my fire and this was the kind of white disco that lays the groundwork for high energy Dan Hartman's Relight My Fire. And, you know, again, it's impossible to go back in time. And, and there's club sets from later on in this period, but not so much the Fire Island stuff. So we don't know exactly what DJ, what Bobby DJ was playing at the Ice Palace. But um, we do know that, that that was one of the tunes that, that was getting played there. And, and we talked about um, 
Bobby Gutadero last time or in the Disco Roots. I can't remember his Disco Roots or the main Disco chapter, but he was at Le Jardin in the city later on. But but he started out at Fire Island and he loved the dancers because they were there for one reason, to party. And they put themselves completely in the hands of the DJs shouting, do it to us. And so, uh, you know, this is this is a, a crowd that wants to get off, that wants to dance, that wants to me- mix and mingle. And there's another aspect of the Disco chapter that happens here we've got another secret origin of a dj and this is tom bolton the remix king who was never technically a disco but he he was the guy who was one of the first people to start doing commercial remixes and he got to start making a remix tape where he put a whole set of songs together on a tape edited it together by hand and he gave it to a club called the botel at fire island and they turn it down they told him you know don't quit your day job you're a model stay pretty boy and, and stay away from the turntables but another club called the sandpiper got a hold of the tape and played it a couple of weeks later and tom moulton had forgotten all about it and he wakes up to a, a barrage of phone calls at 3 a.m the night after his first set had played and he suddenly is a star of the scene so um you know, Fire Island is, is very closely intertwined with what's going on in Manhattan and and having a big influence on it. And and soon there's clubs like 10th Floor, uh, which had a black DJ, Ray Yates, also the Flamingo, which had a massively exclusive uh, membership, $600 membership at the time, quite a bit of money. Calvin Klein had to really struggle and claw to get a membership in. And that was a very white club, a very... Um, you know, this is a time when gay culture is exploding and people are being open for the first time. And it's having this impact on the culture because it's a cruising culture and, and uh, you know, meat market. This is the definition of meat markets. And this is when, uh, like, if you've ever seen Richard Gere and American Gigolo, this was kind of the aesthetic of the time. These pretty boys that are pumping iron. Some of them are probably taking steroids. They're waxing their bodies. Uh, it, it's this cult of the beautiful um to a level that you hadn't seen previously. And we'll, we'll get into this a bit later, but uh, high energy kind of came along hand in hand with this group of gay people that were known uh, inside the scene as the clones. And uh, that's basically, they started off as uh, the construction worker from YMCA and then evolved into uh, that uh, Freddie Mercury, uh, or, or rather uh, Frankie says relax era uh, Freddie Mercury look with the with the pencil mustache and, and uh, the leather and everything else like that. There was an attack of the clones that happened during this scene. And uh, it was it's, it's very interesting to, to read some of the discussions within the scene about whether or not this was a good thing or a bad thing or if the clones were, 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 were ruining things or if they were enhancing things. I guess it all came off to came down to whether or not you could pull off a pair of tight jean cutoffs uh, along with some big heavy uh, lumber boots and a flannel shirt. <laughs> well, the wasn't there, there, there was a, there was a quote in the book something that uh, said uh, no pecs no sex yes. and uh, that that was basically everything was starting to get really. Uh, um, I, I don't know if materialistic is the right word, but it, it definitely it was getting much more exclusive. And if you didn't have a certain look, you were all of a sudden maybe uh, ostracized. Maybe you weren't flamingo material. You know, you had to be 12 West material. Exactly. And that was the club that was known for that, quote, easy racial mix. And and um, DJ Robbie Leslie was was famous there. And, and it was one of the first super clubs. And they say that 
high energy wouldn't be codified until 1984, but New York City's white, white gay disco scene was starting to have a distinct sound. And, and um, that's where DJ Tony Smith from Barefoot Boys quoted saying, they didn't want it too urban and funky. You could play Doing It to Death. That was a James Brown song I was forgetting earlier. Doing It to Death by James Brown was fine, but no sex machine. And what they really liked was female vocals. So, so this diva... Uh, you know, gay culture and, and divas have gone hand in hand since before Judy Garland was born. But by this point, they've got a whole legion of divas, Thelma Houston, Phyllis Nelson, Linda Clifford. Clifford. Plus, they love Euro disco like Voyage and Cerrone. Uh, Call Me Tonight was a big hit there, The Weather Girls. Um, and the same thing happened kind of that happened to Northern Soul. They, they opened this club called The Saint uh, that even Ian Levine uh, – just goes on and on you know there never was a club like the saint that that ian levine's club heaven was modeled on the saint it, it had a 4.2 million dollar remodel before it opened as soon as it opened both the flamingo and 12 west were ghost towns and soon shut down um the sound was honed to you know just those divas they, they knew exactly what they were doing and the disco crash in 79 created a record shortage just like we saw with northern soul and it's funny this time it was the Yanks who couldn't, who did the crate digging. You know, as Ian Levine said, they made gods out of 70s cult disco records. So they're crate digging. Meanwhile, in England, the exact same people from Northern Soul who couldn't come up with new records that really stuck, they open up heaven with the in levine dj uh he's you know he, we know him from the northern soul chapter he was a dj at the blackpool mecca he was the guy that like you said tried to bring disco into modernize the northern soul sound and this time it works he'd been producing records in the 70s some of them with people like Evelyn evelyn thomas um but he goes back to the well and, and reignites those contacts that he'd had and one I think the big distinction between disco and high energy or one of the most obvious ways to tell, are we listening to disco or are we listening to high energy? It's not just that the tempos are faster. It's that they couldn't afford orchestras anymore. Gamble and Huff had orchestra hookups in Philadelphia. And in the early 80s, after the crash, there wasn't the money for that kind of thing. And technology had the answer. So there's tons of synthesizers. And, uh, you know, if, if you just listen to some Ian Levine productions like Evelyn Thomas's High Energy or Michael Brown's classic So Many Men, So Many Little, so little Time, um, you can definitely hear what was at the time cutting edge technology. But now it sounds danky and cheap. Am I wrong? No, not at all. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's very tinny and thin. Uh, it's very distinct of that early '80s sound, and and this is where you kind of say like, what's what is that strange Pet Shop Boys sound? And that's that's kind of that high energy sound that that came from from them using a lot of uh, electronics and and doing the best that they could with with the equipment at the time. But you know, we're still we're still talking very early '80s here. So uh, you know, the, the 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 production standards and and this is just you know, Ian Levine is is just a guy you know even uh it wasn't until uh until basically stock aitken and waterman uh, that that this really turned into something that was no longer just uh, a small uh small releases being made for gay clubs and crossed over into big uh mainstream business absolutely and and so there's a fork in the road should we play 
a bit of Evelyn Thomas or Michael Brown, high energy or so many events, a little time. I, I Michael should we Brown jump track, ahead? I think Michael Brown, it's an important one. Cause again, like, uh, I, I honestly feel like high energy is one of those things that people like, you know, you know what high energy is, but you might not know what we're, what we're talking about. And that Michael track by, uh, by Michael Brown is perfect. All right, well, let's do it. This is Michael Brown. So many men, so little time. Michael Brown, So Many Men, So Little Time, produced by Ian Levine. And as you might have guessed by now, Michael is a lady. So it's spelled with a Q. I always want to try to pronounce it in a way that gives the Q, but then. Uh, I'm glad you said it first because I was going to say Mikkel or, or, or something like that. So I'm, I'm glad that, that you saved me from that embarrassment. I, well, it's because of the documentaries you pointed me to where I heard multiple people like Ian Levine, who I presume know how to say her name, that um, <laughs> said well, Michael, this, is, so. this is the interesting thing. So Ian Levine has a, what is it? Is it a three-hour or a four-hour documentary it's on every, high energy? Every bit of three hours, yes. Yeah. So he has a, a documentary that he made it himself. It's on the Ian Levine YouTube page. And, and he claims that he invented high energy uh, and that so many men, so little time was the first high energy track and that Stock Aitken Waterman uh, or, uh, and took heard that record. And Waterman basically based his formula off that track and you can hear it. And he says that Waterman admitted it. I haven't found any, anything on the record other than, than Waterman just uh, talking about the influence that Ian Levine had, but, but Ian Levine basically insists that he invented high energy and that, that everything that uh, everything that Pete Waterman did afterwards was, was based off of that. And I, you know, I, I don't know what to believe Ian Levine. I feel, you know, uh, after breaking ground on Northern soul and doing everything from there deserves to have, uh, mm-hmm. obviously deserves credit for, for his musical, uh, uh per, contributions to, to both of these scenes. So I'm not about to, to question too much, but he, he definitely builds himself up as, as the person that, that, that created this in addition to Northern soul. Yeah, uh, definitely. And the thing about that movie is it's like cable access quality. It might have been made for cable access. It very much looks like that in the 90s. And it is so long and they play every track all the way through. And there's multiple – there's at least two tracks where they have multiple talking heads dissing the track. Oh, that was a mistake. Oh, we tried to go back to the well once too often and do a copy of that song and it didn't work. And here it is. Let's hear the whole thing. It's like, <laughs> okay, guys. like. <laughs> Way to sell your stuff. But anyway, it, it is it is interesting. And I think the element that's missing in that conversation is the San Francisco stuff and, and what Patrick Cowley was doing with Sylvester around the same time. And I think that they have just as much of a claim as Ian Levine to be in the first high energy records. But I'd have to look at the, the chronology. So I'm not going to I'm not going to argue with our authors here, but the way they treat it, they go to San Francisco a little bit later in the chapter. Um. So we're still talking about the saint and then and Ian Levine and, and heaven in London. And this is where it really becomes this transatlantic phenomenon. You've got Ian Levine who's literally cutting records. Like when he cut 
Michael Brown's So Many Men, So Little Time, he rushed it to the presser, not so he could play it at his own club in London, but so he could fly over to New York and debut it at The Saint, which is really interesting. I mean, that's very much a late 20th century phenomenon. That's not something you would have seen happening, you know, in 1920. And it might not be something you're going to see happening in 2030. Um, this was this was the era of the Concorde, and you could hop on that jet and zip over from London to New York in just a couple hours just to drop a record. And, and so you've got this very cosmopolitan scene that's scattered all over the world, both ends of the North American continent and, and over to London and being very connected as well. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's not just the same music. It's some of the same people globe hopping back and forth. And, and, you know, Levine, the connection at first to Northern soul seems kind of strange, but it, it makes sense because the Motown derived stuff that they loved at Northern soul had a fast stomping beat, you know, nothing funky, just four, four, uh, the kind of beat anybody could get, swirly melodies and female vocalists. As Levine says, gays like melodic, straightforward music that's not too funky. And you'll uh, straight up hear uh, bass lines uh, stolen from from Northern Soul tracks and, and just redone and, and remixes as well. So uh, in, in the early portion of the high energy scene, there's, there's the Northern Soul influence hits you in the face if you were just being listening to Northern Soul like we would. Yeah, and 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 there were multiple rival producers to Levine at that same time that were doing just straight up covers of Northern soul favorites um, that, that sound like Northern soul that, that, that it's obvious that, you know, it's not just a cover. It's, pretty much the same arrangement. It's not like uh, when soft cell does tainted love by Gloria Jones and they redo it uh, in a, in a synth manner. I mean, do you consider Soft Cell's Tainted Love high energy? To me, it's like right in the neighborhood. Yeah, it's it's definitely right in the neighborhood. That that's the whole thing. Uh, that and Sylvester. These are these are these are where you have to open up higher energy to be wider than just that one sound that uh, uh, Stockade can and Watertson like basically like locked in. Everything around that still sits on high energy and is in that influential area. So yeah, I consider that. Okay, good, 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 good. Glad, glad we cleared that amongst ourselves. I'm sure the listeners might differ, um, but yeah. And then, and then, it's interesting. By the mid '80s, high energy is totally the sound of British gay clubs and Scottish straight clubs. Which I love these kind of regional differences. And and they they say that this is going to lead directly to the popularity of later fast styles in the in the late '80s and '90s, like Gabber. Which, if you've ever tried to dance to Gabber. I just have a vision of all these Glaswegians, you know, these five foot six poison dwarfs, like the bad guy from Train Spotting, you know, <laughs> dancing frantically uh, uh, to this high tempo music before they stab each other in the face with pint glasses. But and one of the interesting things about that is, uh, and this is this is something that Ian Levin did on purpose, is that the lyrics in the in the songs are are you know very positive and very full of love, but they avoid gendering the romance because obviously they were selling to a gay club, but they wanted to leave open to interpretation what the music was about to keep it from being like uh, implicitly gay. And that really helped them when, say, they did Kylie Minogue's Locomotion, which, again, uh, Northern Soul track remixed, turned into a, a big high energy hit and all of a sudden uh, a very popular song amongst preteen girls, uh, which is like uh, this is where high energy busts out 
of, of just being a gay dance club phenomenon and turns into really big business. Exactly, because there's there's more teenage straight girls than there are uh, twenty and thirty something gay men. That's just a, a fact of demographics. And and Stock Aikman and Waterman, these are the guys who did it. Uh, Pete Waterman was a DJ, like you said, had played Northern Soul in the Midlands, and he partners up with Mike Stock and Matt Aiken, who are session musicians. And and this is their self-described working method. Waterman would go to the gay discos with his dictaphone. And when he heard something he wanted to steal, he'd hit record and hold it up in the air. And I can only imagine the sound quality of that. <laughs> but but apparently Stock and Aiken could hear you know the, the bits that he had played, and then take it to their bank of technology, their synth, their synth, and um, you know they had an aesthetic of Motown type songs with modern chords and techno gay disco rhythms. And I'd love to know more about the music and know what he means by modern chords. I'm gonna have to ask some of my music heads like. Is there a harmonic difference between Motown? Because Motown's relatively harmonically sophisticated. Holland, Osher Holland, and those guys were throwing down with Brian Wilson and, and Paul McCartney, you know, very much as equals. And and so I want to I want to find out what they mean exactly by modern chords. But yeah, it's very well, I, I know that I know that they definitely. I'm not super up on my music theory as far as chord progressions and everything go, but I know that they were using uh, they were using chord progressions that were that were uh, that, that are basically positive, that are very upbeat and very. Uh, so and that's again another thing that came out of Northern Soul that they stole, and that's that's what I really love about a lot of these innovators that we're hearing here is that these guys unabashedly stole uh, from something that they were doing before. And they used what they stole uh, again, like this guy here was recording music out of the clubs and taking like riffs and not changing them, but turning them into something completely new. And uh, you know, obviously we get into hip hop. We're going to be talking more about that because they were doing the same thing, but you know, just another, another sign of proof that everything's been done. Everything is a remix and uh, it's, it's, it's always what's, what comes out of it is always new and better and interesting and worthy. Yeah, it's and it, it's very much like the history of the blues. I mean, you get a bunch of guys throwing the same three chords around and some of the same stock phrases, and you'll get somebody like Robert Johnson gets his hands on it and creates something new. And that's very much what Stock, Aikman, and Waterman did. They put song structures to the stuff and thought about how the melodies were going to work and, and thought about how the structure, you know, they really sat down with their Motown records and studied at the feet of the masters of the pop record and figure out ah this is how you do it and and that's how they do it so let's take a break and hear from our sponsors and we come back it's going to get very white up in here and one thing about stock aikman and waterman that's interesting to me is they don't just jump in it's not immediately kylie minogue it's not straight to bananarama they start with divine who is you know the star of all the classic john waters movies of the 70s uh you know, pink flamingos, etc. Just one of the most over-the-top drag performers of all time. And then and they and their first hit is So You Think You're a Man with Divine, which is totally a novelty record, but in very short order, they're working with Dead or Alive and cutting you spin me round like a record. And um high energy is fully formed from that moment. Yeah, it doesn't take long after, you know, one or two hits, uh is is selling you know a couple million copies and all of a sudden you're a very in-demand uh, set of producers and, and you know you don't hear a lot about stock and aikman um waterman pete waterman was basically the 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 guy who who made them like kind of like rock stars in their own right and pete waterman had a show 
on late night TV called The Hitman and Her. And they would record this. Uh, they, it would be a traveling show. They'd go to bars or clubs and he would DJ and they would film this all on the fly. And then they would air it that night at like 2 a.m. on television when, you know, the stations used to just go off air. They'd put two hours. They would played at 2 a.m. or even 4 a.m. on some channels. And there'd just be a, a two hour run of 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 him pete waterman and his uh, female co-host running around the clubs interviewing drunk people playing music playing music videos it was uh, it, it's 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 interesting he is ever the showman and he is ever the salesman and i you you really get the the sense and the understanding of that this guy lives in the clubs and understands exactly what this music is all about yeah absolutely and and this is a music that has been critically slammed from its beginning and a ton of that is homophobia a ton of that is critics not being dancers i mean this is not music this is not miles davis it's not beethoven this is not music you sit down in your study and light up your pipe and put on your headphones and enjoy the quadraphonic perfection of the production genius this is music you go to the club you get on the floor you get high and you dance that's the that's the only way to appreciate this stuff and i'm old enough to have been in clubs when Blue Monday by New Order hit and seeing the girls go crazy and and the, and the guys go crazy and it's a real thing and and Stock Aikman and Waterman I mean they're also faceless producers and that's always a critical knock people want to have icons that they can idolize you know whether it's Phil Spector or Brian Wilson or you know whoever the white boy critics you know love to extol and it's only in the recent you know the last twenty years in the face of the poptimism movement among rock critic or music critics that this stuff has been appreciated that it's okay to have a female singer what a crazy notion and it's okay you know you can do great work and be an anonymous uh, behind the scenes producer that's a legit craft and art and something to appreciate and and again you know going back and listening to this stuff it was stuff that i totally took for granted at the time but i gotta take it i mean Dead or Alive, I think that record holds up. Uh, uh, you put it on a mix with with hits from its contemporary period, and it holds its own with everything that was going up against. And whether it's you know Rats, hair metal, or um, you know New Order, uh, kind of the artier edge of of UK uh, synth pop, I, I think I think the stuff stands the test of time in an odd way but again and it, it makes people dance uh, again these, these, yes. these were dj this is a dj driven genre and uh the djs made or braid made or broke the records and uh, that all went down to how people reacted to them on the dance floor at first absolutely and ian levine was also one of the really early producers he didn't just say okay i've made my masterpiece and this is it it's set in stone he would take it to another studio and maybe re-record the drum tracks you know and 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 drop the single and then drop a club remix just a few weeks later. And, and, you know, very much, um, sets the tone for the kind of fungible product, uh, the, the, the living product that, that a dance record is going to become in the eighties and nineties. And at this point, the, the, our narrators take us to San Francisco and we kind of go back in time again. And this is where, you know, they're, characterization of fire island as the world's first substantial gay community i mean i think that the people of the castro district in san francisco might beg to differ with this and they explicit this this is a gay capital it was it's believed that some of that was because 
if you were in the army, the U.S. Army, and you were kicked out for being gay, San Francisco is where they would drop you off. And a lot of those people didn't want to go home. They didn't want to go back to Iowa. They wanted to live someplace where they felt safe to be themselves, and San Francisco became that sanctuary. And like they say in the chapter, San Francisco didn't need a stone wall. There was not – San Francisco has been a wide-open town since the gold rush in 1849 and very accepting of different lifestyles. And uh, gay culture carved out its own – Mecca there, and and you know the, the San Francisco is the gay capital. The the famous song "I Left My Heart in San Francisco," written by two gay men, so well before disco, uh, gay men and and music in San Francisco are linked. But they in the late seventies they start recruiting New York DJs like uh, Bobby Viteri from Long Island shows up at Tacadero Transfer. DJ John Hedges shows up at the City Disco. Howard Merritt, who had played at the Sandpiper and Fire Island, he's brought in and plays at Dreamland. So they're very consciously going to the capital of disco, bringing talent in. And somebody like Bobby Viteri, he's one of the first DJs that insists on being treated as an artist. He sees himself as an artist. He is creating art. He's controlling these dancers. He's working with the lighting guys to create these peak experiences and insists on being treated as an artist. And meanwhile, the same, you know, disco holds on in San Francisco when it collapses everywhere else. And they have the same problem where they run out of records. And and in San Francisco, like in London, they take up the challenge and record labels like Megatone and Moby Dick start making their own stuff. And that's where Patrick Cowley hooks up with Sylvester, who's one of the great drag queens, and, and cuts just a whole series of classic tracks, including Do You Wanna Funk? And let's hear it right now. This is Sylvester's Do You Wanna Funk? Sylvester's Do You Want a Funk? And, and this is the point where we're going to have to get serious here because when you watch the videos of Sylvester and you listen to this music, it's so joyful and so full of life. And then you realize, you know, Patrick Cowley, I don't even think he made it to 1984. And Sylvester was dead by 86, I think. And I know from older gay friends of mine that there was just this Holocaust that, you know, like half the gay men in Manhattan are believed to have died of AIDS in this period. I mean, this this plague comes out of nowhere. These people have been enjoying this freedom, sexual revolution, gay liberation, and hedonism, materialistic hedonism. Unfortunately, you couldn't have created a, a, a more welcoming environment for a virus, especially an insidious one like HIV, and people just did not know what was happening. It snuck up on them, and people were dying long before they re- recognized what was happening. Medical science was not very helpful. The government was definitely not helpful. Ronald Reagan could not have been more homophobic if he had tried. And it just really makes me sad. And, and it's a bummer that Sylvester's music is so joyful and so life-affirming, and I can't watch it without thinking – of these young men who, and women too, who just were cut off um, 
so young. Anyway, sorry to get weak. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge part of the whole thing. A lot of the DJs from this era, a lot of the big names, all dead. A lot of the producers dead. A lot of the performers dead. I mean, and uh, when you're talking about kind of how no one knew what was going on, like they literally had no idea. Uh, you know, it took a while before they even called it grids. Uh, uh, and, and that just basically said, oh, we think it has something to do with being gay. And they were, I remember reading articles about the saint uh, back in New York City, which was like a members only club that, that was the club in New York uh, during the winter, during the off time from Fire Island and it going from completely full to completely empty because people, people basically thought that, you know, drinking from the water fountain at the saint might give you AIDS because so many people from the saint were dying of AIDS. So it's, it's, uh, it's really disturbing. Yeah, it is. And as we've seen in our own era with COVID, ignorance goes hands in hand with hand in hand with pestilence. And everybody's ignorant when you're dealing with a new virus. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant before science has figured out what the fuck is going on here. And nobody knew. And, you know, sexual morality in the 19th century evolved in an era when something like syphilis could kill you and kill you in a horrible Al Capone turned senile kind of way. And and that was one of many reasons, you know, morality is sort of, uh, to me, the lived experience of people who, you know, like look at the 10 commandments. It's like, if you steal stuff, that's probably going to cause trouble for you. If you go around coveting your neighbor's wife, that's probably going to be a net loss. And wildly promiscuous sex has generally been seen as a net loss. But the seventies was this period because of antibiotics that cured syphilis and gonorrhea. Um, and because of the pill, which let women control the reproduction, suddenly there seemed to be, you know, a scientific thing like, oh, well, it's safe to be as promiscuous as you want. So people were going with the best knowledge and the, the cutting edge science of their time. And who doesn't want to be as hedonistic as possible? I mean, I Especially think Especially coming out of those extremely uh, pent up and, and, and ridiculously restricted uh, cultures. Exactly, exactly. I mean, people have these, these natural life force urges and they want to express them. They're told not to, they're told not to, they're not told, they're told not to, they get a green light and they go a little crazy. And man, the punishment was just way out of proportion with the crime to me. I mean, AIDS was such, such a horrific nightmare. And, and, um, you know, there's, there's a great quote they end the chapter with, um, where, uh, Let's see, Roger McFarlane, executive director of the New York AIDS charity Gay Men's Health Crisis, uh, reflected on the bittersweet memories the saint conjures. He says, we didn't know we were dancing to the edge of our graves. And, you know, that sums it up. And it, it's it's just sort of like a children's crusade. You know, you see you see the the kids gathering in the town square and getting all hyped up and, and marching off to go get slaughtered. And it, it's, you know, it's a, it's it's a. It's a sad, sad thing and, and pretty heavy for the show. But um, let's segue a little bit. There was another musical element of high energy that they called sleaze or morning music. And, and sleaze is funny. Like, I don't know why on earth they called it that. But that was after they danced all night, you know, high in cocaine and whatever else. Then around dawn, they'd want to come down music and, and it's sort of the genesis of trance core and, and things like that. And, um, it's, yeah, the book said that it was, uh, it basically kind of, uh, evolved into Balearic music, which is, uh, Balearic was, uh, was kind of a chilled out, uh, chilled out, uh, melodic and, and that in turn kind of turned into trance music. 
Yeah, and also the the and I always say this wrong, GOA Goa, I think, um, the Indian beach town and that that um, I've I've covered before because there's a connection between the Grateful Dead and uh, the evolution of electronic music in India, and and that made it to Ibiza and, and the Balearic. How do you say it again? Balearic. Uh, Balearic. Balearic. Okay, good, good. Um, yeah, and and so uh, the influences, and and they also talk at a, what I felt was an odd point in the chapter. So I moved this to the end, but that that high energy was not a cul-de-sac that it it had successors and it continued to this day and and in the 90s it was new energy and and hard house and and new energy they describe as a form that combined ridiculously fast german techno with goa trance techno with a tune and that's very much the in in line you can you can see the torch being passed from yeah from I, I think i think i think a lot of that came from uh there was a, a number of the djs that were playing high energy kind of uh they they evolved into playing hard house and new energy and and some of those harder forms when they were talking about scotland being really into into high energy because it was fast you know oh my god 120 beats per minute and then people were jacking these records up to plus eight and 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 going nuts with them and then producing music like that. I think one of the one of the core guys who who really brought high energy into new energy was Tony DeVitt, another DJ that unfortunately died of AIDS uh, in in the eighties or in the early nineties rather. Um, and he was he was a guy that basically was was. Uh, one of the key club DJs at the time when high energy was big and crossed over and started doing a lot of that new energy and, and hard house stuff, which, uh, which uh, as Nate said, kind of evolved with bands like lab four into go into, into Psytrance and what Goa was doing. Cool. And let's go ahead and hear a, a little bit of what, what they would play in the sleaze hour. This is the pre-dawn hour when everybody's partied all night and they're looking to chill out. This is Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm. was grace jones slave to the rhythm and again it's putting the lie to the notion that this is a totally white musical form i mean grace jones is one of these uh black divas that these guys just could not get enough of so maybe the dance floor was all white dudes but uh on the stage or on the screen or in the speakers they almost always had a black diva until they replaced him in the case of stock aikman and waterman with kylie minogue and banana rama and everything and i don't want to diss kylie or banana rama either i mean it's it's fun it's stuff completely and- stripped of all funk and i think that's kind of where i where i look at the racial line is that white people just never they aren't as funky and they like it they like it a lot uh, tighter and you know uh, for, forgiving because it is still very much gay a lot of uh, gay influence but it's very straight music as opposed to funky and uh with with a real swing to it yeah and and our authors quote um a cultural critic named peter shapiro who says that that the blanching of high energy that you know he says high energy would blanch disco not so much by bleaching its black roots but by striving for superhuman perfection by pushing the clone aesthetic to its limits so it's 
not that they were rejecting blackness per se. It's just that they had this ideal, this vision of the perfect man, the perfect sexual being um, and hedonist. And and this was the music that they were dancing to while they sculpted those pecs. Or I guess after they'd sculpted their pecs, they're showing them off after a hard day at the gym. So yeah, this is a fascinating um, chapter for me. And, and it's definitely music I took for granted or looked on with contempt at the time. I mean, it's just so easy to knock music like this if you're a straight dude or whatever, and, you know, uncomfortable with with homosexuality and and contemptuous of girl groups and and you know who's going to take bananarama seriously but i'll tell you i kept my bananarama cassettes a lot longer than i kept say wasp you know like it, it outlasted um a lot of the the music of its time and and I don't know. It's this is a really fun chapter, and this is what I really like about this book is it made me think and, and go back and listen to stuff that I otherwise would have totally written off and forgotten about completely. But I think there's definitely a case these people impacted their culture, they impacted our culture, and they're still impacting our culture. Yeah, I mean the uh, the the whole lie that that you know the '80s were a black hole musically. Uh, and that it was uh, just dominated by the labels, uh, just trying to make a quick buck. I mean, you know, there is there's truth to this, just like there was truth to uh, the fall of disco and why that happened. But underneath it, you know, uh, as we said, the dance floor doesn't lie. These tunes made people move and they still make people move. They hold up to this day. And uh, this it was fun going back and, and, and finding out where it came from and uh, and uh, seeing some of the top stuff from it. Absolutely. And I also think it's good to remember, you know, people like Sylvester and Peter Cowley and all the other casualties of the era. So pour one out, you know, like let's have some respect for these lost angels of high energy. And, and next week we'll be back and we'll talk about hip hop roots as part of a two week excursion into hip hop with Brewster and Broughton. The book is Last Night of DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey. I'm Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness and I will be back next week. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week with special guest Steve Jewin to discuss Founding Fathers of Hip Hop, a documentary that covers what the DJs in the straight black discos in Brooklyn, Queens, Harlem, and the Bronx were doing in the early days of disco and hip hop. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. 
Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.